everybody and welcome to the classroom. Hello. <laughs> Brett's delayed. All right. Charming in. <laughs> um, yeah, today, guys, we are uh, talking about the Mark of Athena. Uh, this is the third in this uh, series now, right? Yes. In the Heroes of Olympus series. Yeah. Eighth overall, if I can do ma simple math in my head. <laughs> We're, neither of us have anything to do with the STEM, and this is why. Uh, no stem here any <laughs> um yeah so mark of athena uh this i was telling brett off mic this is the book in which i started reading the percy jackson series it was like this book came out in like 2012 and this is when little 12 year old Haley started reading percy jackson so she got to the end of this book and had to wait an entire year <laughs> until the release of house of hades um so yeah yeehaw um brett what do you think? Uh, I liked it. I I liked it quite a bit. I feel like uniting all those characters I didn't think was going to go well. I thought they were just going to like have like too many active characters on the board and it was going to get like wild and whatnot. But I think by limiting it to like, oh, only like three people are leaving the ship at a time, he was able to deal with that a little bit better. Um. I thought there were some weird there were some weird bits in this book. I'm not going to dance around that. However, for the most part, I thought it was good. This book was also a lot funnier. Uh, I, I think he's sort of getting the humor back. Uh, slowly, the, they've been getting funnier and funnier in this series. So, uh, But yeah, I, I liked it overall. They definitely pulled some bolder moves. I know that they'll probably be remedied by, by the next book, but still, I think ending uh ending mark of athena like they did was a a bold strategy by ryden <laughs> and this is the first time not the first time but one of the first times that we've really had like characters left in peril um like usually yeah like we know exactly by the end of the book we know exactly what is happening to the character this is the first time we've had like a true cliffhanger yeah like the, the biggest thing was we got is like uh oh Luke's still out there and he's prowling like now it is just like yeah uh they are falling and they will die goodbye they have fallen into the deepest pits of Greek hell <laughs> really basically that's what it is so I guess we can hop into our recap um so we start off uh actually the perspective is really neat we've got four four narrators in this book uh Annabeth Percy Piper and Leo we start off with Annabeth uh, the Argo flies into New Rome. Annabeth Judo flips Percy, yells at him for leaving her. Leo, in the middle of the celebration of the uniting of camps, uh, possessed by some sort of demon wind spirit, um, shoots cannons into the Roman camp. Uh, panic ensues because, you know, he's attacked the camp. Uh, Percy, Hazel, Frank hop on the ship. They start flying across the U.S. Miscellaneous battles ensue throughout the U.S., um, when they get, the most important of which is probably when they get to Charleston, South Carolina, and they, um, <laughs> why, are you laughing at me? Huh? No, I'm not, no, I'm not laughing at the, at, at the, the draw, uh, popping out. <laughs> they, Annabeth and Raina have this conversation where they're like, you know, you got, whatever you're doing, yeah, I can't stop Octavian, he will try to destroy your camp and annabeth's like i'm not asking you to stop him i'm asking you to delay him they fly across the atlantic uh roll up into rome 
Um, hijinks ensue there. They beat Hercules at one point. Yeah, um, they beat Hercules by like shooting him with just soda and food coming from a cornucopia. It's a lot. Which is which is wild, but. <laughs> Um, and then <laughs> we hop into the city of Rome, I believe, um, and uh, Annabeth goes on the quest that her mother had given her to find the um, Athena's uh, like statue that should be able to re- re- like reunite the camps. Uh, she meets with the goddess of all, or the the mother of all spiders, uh, who was defeated by Athena in a weaving contest. Arachne. Yeah. And she was defeated by Athena in a, in a weaving contest, so now she's bitter. And she's like, if you want the statue of your mother, you've got to beat me, in a, or you've got to, like, you know, whatever. Annabeth appeals to her pride, uh, defeats her by using a chi- by having her basically make her own Chinese finger trap. Yeah. Uh, Annabeth then is boasting in her face, like, haha, get wrecked. Uh, the Argo shows up with the other seven. Or with the other, you know, six of the seven, and a saved Nico who had been kidnapped, uh, and then Arachne falls into the pit of Tartarus, and then uh, takes Annabeth with her. In turn, Percy tries to save Annabeth. Annabeth then takes Percy with her, um, and Nico is left standing there, looking down, like, "Up, oh, they just gone, cool." <laughs> um, and then the rest of the seven continue on with their quest to make it to Greece to meet. Percy and Annabeth at the doors of death. Ta-da! I think I covered everything. And there we go. Um, I missed some details about first, like a uh, couple the things that I. But. Yeah, that that uh something I wanted to throw in there real quick. Uh, there was like a lot of their like fun little ventures. Once again, didn't uh like contribute too much to the overall plot. Uh, but something that I do like that I think that um, uh, Rick Riordan has done a pretty good job at so far is that I was like, mm, you know what? If they keep just using these monsters, like there's there's not enough monsters in Greek mythology, like just straight up monsters for him to go through all this. A lot of it comes from like characters and like mortals that like people he has already like canonically said have died. So I think that opening the doors of death uh gave him a lot more room of even on those little things like uh when narcissus was there uh it was it was fun he's like oh okay you can make a joke about that you can use him as a character and it doesn't need to mean too much in the end uh and the, i don't know i just thought it was i thought it was fun opening up the doors of death like that Quite i thought it, i thought it was a very nice thing for for the story and for like making sure things didn't get too stale well and it, and we'll see later that it allows him to build it, that's basically this the doors of the of the dead being open um actually is what jump starts the tower or the trials of apollo series interestingly enough like that plays into it a little bit um so yeah that's i agree it was a very cool thing that riordan was able to do um we we were talking about this off mic there's a lot less like thematically that happens a lot less thematically to pull out of this book. Um, Rick Riordan does the thing where he just packs it full of action. Um, the only real theme we have in this book is pride. Yeah. 
there's a there's quite a lot of pride in this book uh and pride and jealousy going hand in hand uh and that is like the main driving force uh between like a lot of the like inner party conflict and also like one of the main driving forces of like defeating a lot of the bad guys i mean like i said earlier narcissus is in this and his whole thing is just like i'm gonna stare at my reflection until i die right um speaking of i know i've brought that up twice now i'm gonna bring up one more thing about that because i liked it what possessed good old rick to make leo say the line and i quote i'm the supersized mick shizzle I would like some comments <laughs> from from good old Ricky on that because it is such a it is such a strange line to me that I had no idea why it was there. At that point, I was listening to the audiobook and I was like finishing some homework, and I said, "Certainly, I didn't hear that right." And I like I had to had went back like thirty seconds, I was like, "Nope, nope, nope. That's that's correct." Yeah. Okay. That whole scene. It's probably one of the funnier moments of this book, too. Because Leo... <laughs> it, was, it was very comedic. That is probably... The, I think at that point was when I was like, you know what, Leo, I don't hate him as much as I did in his first book. Like, he's, like, he's actually... He, like, I've always liked him. I know. But, uh, but, yeah, no, that is probably... I don't even know. And the fan art that comes from that scene is always good. Because it's him with, like, sharpied hot stuff across his forehead. And it's so on-brand for, like, class can- <laughs> like class clown archetype Leo. It's a good scene. I don't know what the heck was going to Rick Riordan's mind when he was like, I'm going to make this child say any of this. I, I don't know. I'm not sure if it was something that he had heard once and he goes, ah, oh, that's what the kids are saying now. Or if he just... He just did, let's see, I'm the supersized, uh, rolls another die, McShizzle. Like, I'm not sure what, he, <laughs> what was up there, but I thought it was funny. Like, this book is circa 2012, so that is spot on 2012 humor. Mm, that's fair. Uh, that is very on brand 2012 humor. Um, there, were, there were a lot of funny bits, honestly. I have, like, an entire, entire section of my notes that are just bits that I thought were really funny. Uh... <laughs> If Bill does not come back, I will be so sad. Or if we don't get to see Bill. Bill. Okay, so Camp Fishblood. I couldn't, I can't remember their original name. They just go like, I trained the greatest heroes, even Bill. And I was like, okay. And then they're like, oh, we should send Bill on that quest. And they're like, oh, that'd be perfect. And later we just hear that it was wiped out almost instantaneously, the force that was sent. So who? the hell is bill why do we need percy jackson i want i want billy i want this good old bill folk bill the fish man where is is william the fish man (laughs) oh my god there are so many like good bits too um specifically one of the battle scenes that's one of my favorite is not really the battle when percy and frank get locked in the aquarium and Frank just oh, panics yeah. and becomes a koi fish. And Percy's like, what the heck, man? You could have become anything. And then Frank's just like, ah. Or the scene with the dolphins. He's like, I panicked. Dolphins, also a peak scene. The scene with the dolphins was great. Uh, I really, I liked 
I mean, actually, I didn't like him. I, I did not like uh, Bacchus in this. Is that how you pronounce it in this? I think Bacchus? so, yeah. Uh, I thought he was fun. I did not like how he was nigh useless in everything. Yeah. Like, he's, he's just like, I'll just vibe here until you have literally defeated the giants. <laughs> entertain me. Yeah. And um, so I, I think we could go ahead and I want to start talking on, on the jealousy and pride. Yeah, of course. Because we see a lot of it here. Um, like you had said earlier, the driving forces of this book, both externally, externally, in, like um, inside of our characters that are narrating, a lot of times pride is what's taking the, the reins here. Um, uh, well, and we see it in a smaller, not as a severe, I don't think, of regard between Percy and Jason. Uh, both of them, of course, we've made the parallels before between the two of them. They are both about the same kind of character. They are their, their camp's golden boy. They've always been the leader. Everybody's always looked up to them. And now they're both trying to lead simultaneously, which just ends in like them like passive aggressively at first and then them getting over it uh, after they almost murder each mm. other. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought that was good. And there was a line from... Uh, there was a line from I think Jason who was like, my like almost my entire life I have just been the guy that was so powerful and so revered that I kind of had to do everything and like help everyone around him. And he's not saying this in like a like prideful way necessarily. He's like he's not saying it to boast. He is just saying like matter of factly like I was the strongest person uh, at the camp and I was the leader of like everything. And now that I am here with people on equal footing, I do not know what to do. Right. And, and like I said, it, we see the pride in a very different regard between the two of them because it's not either of them trying to be like, oh, I am the best. Mm -hmm. It's just like the subtle things where they're like, the scene that really like solidifies it for me is when they are both going to the head of the table and then they just kind of like stare at each other. Like, uh, you, me, you, and then Annabeth takes it, so they're like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> Neither of us, it's fine. Um, and, and like I said, we have the battle scene between them, which, of course, they're both possessed, ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, but they also race to the, like, the grounds to kind of, like, one-up each other, um, mm -hmm. which has a little bit of underlying tension to it, especially when followed with the like a battle royale between the two that Piper is just standing yeah. in the middle of like please don't god no stop it but theirs is probably the, the least severe of the, the pride and jealousy we see in mm -hmm. this book um and then you have yeah, Frank and, and oh, there's some comments there's I was gonna say there's some comments I want to get to on Piper afterwards. That's more discussion than sort of like theme talk. So I'll, I'll save that one, but I want to make sure that we touch on that later. Yeah, um, and then of course, it has very little effect to the plot uh, or to like the greater happenings, but does a lot in the in the psyche of these characters. Is the like back and forth between Frank and Leo? Um, there's a lot of jealousy, specifically from Frank. Um, not too much from Leo, just because Leo is Leo. Um, 
but we see a lot of mm-hmm. we see a little bit of Leo's pride in the fact that Hazel's hanging out with him or talking to him. It's very their jealousy and pride and their like back and forth remind me that these are kids. Frank is sixteen, mm-hmm. that, yeah. Leo's sixteen, and Hazel's what fourteen. Like they are they're kids, and this is like a total like this entire quabbling between the two of them over Hazel, kind of not necessarily over Hazel, but over Hazel's attention is yeah. just very reminiscent of a high school like drama circle. Mm-hmm. It also it was strange because neither one of them was inherently angry at the other for for like just one reason they kind of just there was a lot of smaller things they were leading them to their sort of like they're both not only like sort of vying for the attention of hazel but uh leo is like a constantly on fire at least in some capacity and that could kill frank more than a normal person uh instantly uh, and Leo is also terrified because this man, first time he sees him, turns into a dragon and wipes out an entire legion of Romans. Yeah, and it's like, like you said, it's less, uh, there's a lot of insecurity in both of these characters. And I guess that's where we see it more. Maybe that lack of pride between the mm-hmm. two of them, that they're both like so doubtful of themselves. Um, of course, we know from the last book that Frank has very little like perception of self-worth. He is like, I did bare minimum, and I guess that's good enough. I hate it here. I am a pathetic excuse of a human, and we'll get more of that later in the series. And then you have Leo, who puts on the facade of like, haha, look at me. I'm very prideful and very like uh, pompous. And really, when we get into his narration, boy's depressed. Boy needs a therapist. Mm. <laughs> Like, please, somebody get these children help. <laughs> Boy needs to talk to Chiron or someone more qualified than Chiron to talk to children. Really? Um, and, of course, I think the biggest pillar of pride we see in this entire book is Annabeth. Mm-hmm. It is literally her fatal flaw. And we see it come into full play in this book. Yeah, she uh, like like you said, her fatal flaw is is like pride, is hubris, uh, and like her namesake is basically on the book. It it's called Mark of Athena. She's the child of Athena, and th- one of the main forces of this is her trying to find this statue that is supposedly about to turn the tide of the war for them. Um, and every I I would say every challenge that she faced while in that sort of like i'm not sure what you want to call it the challenge run up up until finding arachne uh kind of hinged on her pride like a lot of it was confidence uh, as well but like, i i think those things it, like aren't too far off sometimes like she was just looking around the room and guessing things and if she guessed wrong it was her life on the line but she was so confident in her abilities to like deduce what was going on that she was just like yeah i'll just say this without thinking too hard on it right and then well and i agree i think that there's the, the very thin line between pride and confidence that annabeth straddles pretty well until mm-hmm. after the battle or battle air quotes with arachne um yeah. she of course 
and that scene itself is just very powerful because the entire time uh, like as she meets Arachne she is pumping up Arachne's pride she is giving her any sort of compliment she can she is offering her you know oh I am the architect of Olympus would you really like to hurt Athena's pride I'll hang your weaving all over the you know all over Olympus like I just need you to make this one thing. Athena can't even make this, and I think you will be able to. And of course, that's Arachna's downfall. But it's Annabeth's pride after defeating her that directly leads to her and Percy getting yanked into Tartarus. She is berating. I'm just going to stand one centimeter away from this monster. Right, and one like one centimeter away from the monster, and then like a couple feet from the ledge, the, the bottomless hell. Yeah. Bold. You should have just, just kick her, and like I also, it, it, she literally spits webs, and you just did this whole web-based thing. She's like, I thought it was just a couple threads. I would have been, like, I would have been cutting and looking for threads that entire time. I would have been doing that for like a solid five minutes, checking and double checking. I was not threaded up. I'm not saying I'm smarter than Annabeth. I, like I said, it took me a couple seconds to add up five plus three at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> However, girl is prideful and sometimes does not fully think about that. And it's like, and I think it's a little uh, ironic, really, that of course it's the simplistic design of the Chinese mm -hmm. uh, finger trap that, you know, is... Arachne's design. And Annabeth's like, ah, uh, yes, think small. Think, you know, base level. Like, throughout the entire thing, she's like, don't put too much thought into anything. You're, you know, she literally is basically going right off mm -hmm. of confidence alone, and you got this. And then we see the downfall of that kind of ideology as she plummets mm -hmm. into Tartarus with her boyfriend. <laughs> and literally pride is Annabeth's downfall in every sense of that in this in chapter um and like you said it's throughout her entire quest and really it's she's the leader of the quest of the seven too mm -hmm. um she is the one like i said earlier she's the one who takes the head of the table she's the only one that doesn't really have a parallel to somebody else from of course she's the only one that doesn't narrate one of the first two books She's the only one in those groups of three that don't, she doesn't have a, a, like a, she doesn't have like an equal. Yeah. Like she doesn't have, she doesn't have the parallels like Jason and Percy do or, you know, Frank and Leo or Hazel and Piper, like, or whichever lines we drew last mm -hmm. episode. Those aren't there for Annabeth. The closest we get to that with Annabeth is Raina, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But it's, she's the leader of this. And she also, you know, she's kind of the one who spearheads a lot of the decisions and stuff. They go through her first. She's the strategist. Um, but a lot of times her pride and her assuming that she's got all her bases covered is what results in chaos. It, I'm not saying the beginning and the sequential war with the Romans is Annabeth's fault. However, she knows... The people are out to get her. There are four demigods on this on this ship. That's more than they should travel in packs together. And she doesn't think to like cross her eyes or cross her t's and dot her eyes. Rather, she's just like Leo won't kill anybody, right? And then he does. 
well, that's not Leo's fault, nor will I say that's Annabeth's fault. Like, she she probably wasn't expecting. Okay, uh, let me just uh, proof. Like, let me just make sure that nobody can get possessed by evil Roman ghosts and fire not, cannons. Okay, I'm not saying that she she was the reason that they got possessed. All that. I'm just saying she, for somebody who is like based in strategy and like runs all these different scenarios in her mind. She neglected a handful at, yeah, at the beginning fair. of the that's book. Fair. Also, she, although I do love the scene of her just mm-hmm. going up and judo flipping Percy, the Romans freak out <laughs> when they see their prayer just on the ground. <gasps> They're like, whoa, what? Like, that, it, that alone could have almost caused the war. <laughs> but yeah. I'm being a little Like, it won her brownie points in Raina's eyes, but that was it. Yeah, I'm being a little harsh on Annabeth, but her book, yeah, this is fine. very Annabeth-centric of a book, so. I'm making up for the, the years of, like, Annabeth idolization I did as a child. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, we can go ahead and, we'll go ahead and talk about the mark and the quest for the mark itself. Yeah, sure. Because... This is the, the last of the parents that we haven't seen involved in the Seven, and good God, does Athena really just beat up Annabeth? Mm-hmm. Actually, let me ref- Athena did the bullying of Annabeth. I don't need to anymore. I need to, I need to stone back, because Athena in this book, and in her delivering the quest to Annabeth, was awful. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Like, like we see that she's just like, she basically tells Annabeth that like, ah, you are the brightest and smartest of my children, but also you're an idiot. It just, mm-hmm. it's, it's very weird with and, me. I hate that scene. And I can see, cause it, it definitely felt like, what's the, what's the Roman equivalent called? Minerva. Mer- Meredith. Minerva. Minerva. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> Minerva, uh, like it definitely feels like there's some sort of parallel trying to be drawn between like that and like abuse of some kind. Like that, that felt fairly obvious there. Um, but I also think that it it shows like sort of a, a a fair parental situation that just because you have suffered abuse in the past does not mean you can reflect that back down onto your children. Mm-hmm. Um and. I think that that's sort of what Minerva slash Athena was doing in that scene. She was, um, and I'm not sure if it was, I'm not sure if it, uh, like, it was Athena's doing that only a child of Athena could see all these things and they could only do it alone, or if that was, like, some sort of Roman countermeasure. But it, uh, from, my, from what I read into it, it looked like it was an Athena thing. Of Like, she was, Athena's uh, flaw herself was hubris in, in that, oh, uh, the only one of my kids can do this. Um, and I think you could, you could really see that in those trials of uh, Annabeth kept going, oh my God, this is, we could just instantly have this done if, um, uh, if like Hazel came along and started like uh, moving the paths or if Piper could charm speak all these people to stop. And like, I think that was important for Annabeth to like, to help her realize like, oh, even though I don't have powers, I can do these things too. But it also fed, one, it fed into her hubris of like, I can do this, I can do this alone. It also fed into Athena not accepting help from anybody 
uh, despite kind of needing it, despite it making it a lot easier. Well, and you brought up a really good point saying, is this an Athena countermeasure or a Roman countermeasure? And I think it's both. Because we know from Raina's speech uh, with, with Annabeth in the city, like when they're in New Rome together, that there is no Roman equivalency of Annabeth. There are no children of Minerva. Um, even though the Greek, like Athena children are not technically birthed in the, te mm -hmm. you know, the way you would think of birthing, um, no, not even that is acceptable in Roman culture. So I think to find the statue of Athena, it had to be a true Greek kid. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's that fair. I think that's the point. Um, and the quest for the mark, like you said, is very messed up. Like there are so many things, and I think it it does say a lot on Annabeth's character that she is able to kind of like you said she's going through the process of like this would be so much easier if my friends were here with me this would be so much easier if i could have frank or jason either one fly me across this cavern or you know and like you said hazel show up or whatever um and annabeth's calling into that and i think it helps her grow and realize that she can't do everything alone but at the same time like you said it definitely fuels into her like you know what i can do things alone if i have to yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, I liked the, I, I liked the sort of like things that he was throwing at us with those trials um, uh, when, when searching for the mark, or rather when searching for the, the statue of Athena, uh, but it definitely, I'm not sure if it helped or hindered uh, Annabeth's character after all that. And I'm going to throw a little bit of curveball ball at you, and because we didn't talk about this uh, before the show. Go but one it. character we see that also has this very similar flaw to Annabeth, which is the do-it-yourself attitude that I can do everything on my own, is Nico. And we see yeah. what it literally gets Nico. Uh -huh. It gets him almost dead in a jar. And uh, Nico is such a strange character in this. Um, something very interesting about Nico in this is that, like, his fatal flaw is like holding a grudge. And that does not really pop up much in this. If anything, he seems, once again, like you said, very prideful. Um, and also, I do think that, I think we talked about it a little bit last week, but uh, it did show in this one that he was explicitly told by Hades slash Pluto not to say anything about the two different camps and that he had known for a while. But if he said anything, he would have kind of been in trouble. Um, and I, I, I understand that. I get that he couldn't have done it, but I feel like, I feel like he could have hinted at it a little bit. I do not fault him, but I think there's more he could have done. And like I said, in this book, we see that Nico, he literally, because at the end of this, he tells the rest of the seven what got him in the jar, which is basically he had trekked through Tartarus on his own. Mm -hmm. He was kidnapped by these giants. First off, trekking through Tartarus, as we'll see, is very difficult for demigods to do. It is literally the land where monsters go to regenerate, and the concept of demigods even being there is beyond common thought. And so Nico decided, don't tell anybody what you're doing. Just go. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what he did. He thought he could handle it, and ultimately it takes a team to get him out. And yeah, I think 
and there's a lot to be said that we don't have enough space for in the, the, the span of this podcast that I think <laughs> when Bianca was talking about, you know, children of Hades, their flaw being um, a grudge, I think she was talking more of herself because I think Leah or Leah's shoot, I think Nico's is he's too individualistic. Like he doesn't, he's too independent. His yeah, fatal flaw fair. is his independence. He does not ever try to branch out and like get help, especially in this first, in this series, um, or in the last one for that matter. But yeah, sorry for the little curveball there. But no, you are a okay. I um, think that was I think that was good to bring up. And I think I can go ahead and head towards our kind of last big point, um, which this is the place where I want to have the dialogue about the difference between the Greeks and the Romans. It is very obvious here, the difference between the Greeks and the Romans. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we see the, the dichotomy between kind of the rigidness of Hazel, Frank, and Jason compared to the like kind of laid back nature of Percy, Piper, and Leo, and then in turn, Annabeth. Um, and we get the real big difference in the camps. Um, we see that the, the sorry, let me rephrase, not in just the camps, but in the fighting strategy. We see the Romans trek across the country to make a point. <laughs> Somebody did that to the Greeks, they'd be like, are you leaving New York? Okay, cool. Stay out. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, the, 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 just the pure, I don't even know what you want to call it, like, not chutzpah, but just the, the audacity of the Romans just to, just to keep even trying to hunt after them after this long. Like, it was a war that they, they, like, fired on them, and every single person that came was like, whoa, we don't know what's happening, and they didn't decide, oh, no, we are, we're not going to, like, stop you and then determine we are going to go on a full-on war and chase you across America. Right, like, the entirety of their camp, all of their legacies, all of their demigods, mm -hmm. chasing seven people in a boat. Yeah, like, like I can understand, like, I fully understand the, like, uh-oh, I'm not sure if we can trust these people because they're firing. But she has truth-smelling dogs that knew that Annabeth was telling the truth at the very least. You could have just... I don't know. Maybe, maybe if they had captured them there instead of killing them, and they would have captured them and interrogated them and figured out what was going on. Uh, we don't know because they weren't they weren't good enough. Well, but, but we kind of see. I mean, Reyna and Annabeth have that conversation in the the Civil War monument, um, and Reyna tells Annabeth straight up, she's like, "Octavian wants blood. If there is not blood mm -hmm. spilt, that your camp will be burnt. I know where your camp is. You told me where your camp is." he will stop at nothing to get to your camp. You are sealing the fate of Camp Half-Blood. And Annabeth went, just try to hold it off. Mm -hmm. They can handle their own long enough, but not for forever. It's, it's a lot. Um, and this is also, this kind of civil war between the demigods is ultimately what starts the split, or not starts, but solidifies the split between the gods. Um, mm -hmm. Aphrodite tells Piper, Hazel, and Annabeth this straight up. She's like, mm, I'm unaffected because I'm literally the same in both regards. 
Um, we'll see. I think in the next book we meet up with Apollo and, and um, Artemis as Apollo and Diana. And Apollo is just straight up the same way. He's like, I tweak a little bit, but not a lot. But then you have people or gods like, like Athena who are completely different. Um, her, her powers are completely different. Her abilities are completely different. She is very much stripped of her Greek counterpart. I think also says a lot about like why there are no children of Minerva in the Roman camp. But mm -hmm. the difference, this, the split is also very solidified in Annabeth and, and Reina. Um, the closest Reina's mother has to a Greek counterpart is Athena, but she is not the counterpart of Athena. She just encompasses kind of the wartime aspect of Athena. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, I can't remember the name of Reina's mom. Let me, let me correct myself. I don't remember how to pronounce it. Yeah. Um, she is just a wartime goddess, which is yeah. why Reina is so good with strategy and this kind of leadership position. Mm -hmm. Whereas Annabeth, you know, Athena is both the the, the both like the craft. god of the crafts and yeah. strategy right and that divide is between the two of them we see that annabeth obviously through her quest has a little bit more creative thinking than reina does mm -hmm. but reina's really she's like i have to follow the rules the game will play out the way the game will play out there's very little i can do to make this change i can you know, move pawn here, but I can't, I can't put us in a different game. Like we are still going to play chess. Mm -hmm. We're in a best like, so hear me out. Uh, what if we detonate the chessboard and roll up the checkers game? Same vibe, different go, let's go, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, not that Reina herself doesn't have the critical thinking skills to think outside of this. It's like that she is not able in her leadership role or in her like, identity Position. to do yeah so yeah that's my biggest that's my spiel <laughs> <laughs> i i think like no, i think I, those I two characters agree. show it the most because like their parents do not have equivalency on the other side so mm -hmm. do, 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 do. so we'll go ahead and move to characters we were going to talk about about reina and annabeth but i think we have beat that horse <laughs> to this point uh yeah. we did a lot of talking about them we have a couple other characters we beat we can... it to the point that i can't see a horse there anymore <laughs> like i don't i don't think there's much left there at all um but we do have a couple other characters we can kind of talk on um and i think uh we should start with the most the most enjoyable of this option uh of our options here which is going to be just crapping on octavian yeah oh my gosh first off um I think I, I don't think I said this in the episode thus far. One of my favorite scenes in this book is when they're on the dock in South Carolina and he's like, all right, ladies, put your weapons down. And Annabeth just yeets her knife and she's like, yeah. oh no, stupid me. I'm so sorry. And then Percy just, just drowns. <laughs> it's great because like okay. he even smirks and goes, ah, oh, you're so stupid and stupid 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 like he's just like i think he like just lays into her and it's, it's very funny to me 
Man is a raging misogynist. <laughs> man is a raging misogynist. <laughs> you cannot tell me. It. Um, but no, I Octavian, and he is one of those characters. He is literally the reason that the war has escalated to be a legitimate war at this point. Um, I mean, obviously, like we had said a second ago, Reyna straight up tells Annabeth, she's like, Octavian wants blood. He yeah. is the one leading this, not me. Even though he's not a creator, he has the power to do this. He's a legacy. He's been here forever. He's the driving force in this. And there's nothing Reyna can do. Um, and we see he just like, like you said it earlier, it's like Reyna has these truth-telling dogs. She knows that Annabeth isn't lying, that something's mm-hmm. went wrong. Octavian isn't willing to hear anything out. He's like, kill the Greeks. And then they're like, hey, uh, we're going to fly across the ocean where you can't come after us anymore. Otherwise, you won't be Roman anymore. And he went, cool, I'm going to burn down your camp. Yeah, it is. It is full on just whack. uh, The extents that he goes. Um, He's he's cartoonishly evil. Yes. Well, he also, he's the one who, like, freaks out on Reyna for letting the Greeks in the camp in the first place. Mm -hmm. He's like, are you kidding me? This is disgusting. How dare you lead our people and allow them He said the augury, yeah. He was like, oh, the augury predicts bad things happening. And, like, this is just a personal little theory from me on him. Um, uh, he says that the augury predicted bad things coming from the Greeks entering the camp. And I think that that didn't seem like it was coming true. So in order to keep people believing in his power, he tried to like instigate as much as he could so something would go bad. Because well, why was he on the ship? Well, like, I know he did not cause prophecy? it. Yeah, like I know he did not cause the ship to explode, but like I can't think of literally any other reason he would be up there. He said he just climbed a ladder and was talking to like Leo, Leo? and then as soon Which as he like, left, Leo started firing. The least likely character he would interact with. Yeah, exactly. Like it seems it seemed intentionally crappy. And I don't I don't know. I, I hate Octavian so much. He's hate, I hate him too. But okay, that's that's character number one. Um, do you? I know you were excited to talk about Piper. Do you want to talk about Piper? Yes, let's talk about Piper. <laughs> I like Piper a lot. I've liked her in the other books. She's a little creepy in this one, like in incredibly so, uh, to the point that I'm hoping it gets addressed. In almost every line of dialogue she has. She's either trying to use or is currently using charm speak. Um, and which is like a kind of like anti-character development. Maybe it has something the the way to say it, but like her thing originally was she was using it to get what she wanted, uh, but didn't really like doing that and didn't want to like like misuse the power that she had and like she didn't want to be like I think Dana was her name from the camp originally. Um Drew. And but yeah. Oh Drew, thank you. Um but it, it seems that she was literally using it every possible every possible chance she had, 
even in things that it didn't really matter. Like I can understand, like she used charm speak to be like, to calm down person, be like, it's going to be okay. You're going to do fine. But like a lot of what she said did not require charm speak. It just required saying something nice to somebody. Human compassion. Yeah. She used it in so many situations that were not needed that I was just like, this feels weird. This feels like she's like flexing her power on the other people here. We also see that she's got a lot more powerful with her charm speak in this in this book. Oh yeah. She single handedly controls the three like demon things that possess Mm -hmm. Jason, Percy, and Leo. They su- she summons them. She says, show yourselves. And she says, leave. And they do. They don't. These literal, like, godly entities don't bat an eye about listening to her. She mm-hmm. has so much power in this book for a character. Really, she doesn't do a lot outside of just, like you said, it's, I, and I haven't really even thought about it. Every, almost every piece of dialogue. Yeah, she, it's. With the exception of when she's talking to her mom. But even then, she's not happy that she can't use her charm to speak against her mother. Uh-huh. She even uses it on, like, she gets she gets cocky, too. She uses it on uh, Bacchus, on, like, the Mr., the Roman Mr. D. Like, like she uses it on a literal god uh, and tries it on everyone else. Someone that was even on their side. Like, it is just, I don't know. It's, it's wild. They're, like, the like power that she wields it is wild how much it has gone to her head since last we've seen her and like i'm not saying she's a bad character i just think that she is she's been sort of warped by what she's been given right now really and maybe she and maybe i would be willing to say that she's a bad character if we like if this continues in the next book but right she's getting real comfortable with her ability to manipulate getting, people she's she getting real comfortable and with that, I think our final character is going to be Nico. Um, of course, I take any excuse I can to talk about Nico. He's one of my favorite characters in the series. And we, we really touched on Nico a lot at the beginning of this um, episode. We talked a lot about his kind of individual streak, his, need, his independence, and mm-hmm. his need to just do everything on his own. But my heart when I first read this, it broke for the fact of Nico just stuck in this jar, barely living, just ticking off his days by the, like, pomegranate seeds. It's so heartbreaking. And then he has to watch the guy that, like, he has grown up with get hurled into a pit. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's him that Percy kind of puts in charge. He goes, you lead them to death stores. You do it. And I also, okay. Nico, I like Nico a lot. I think he's a fun character. Um, I enjoy his, his presence in the stories. And I will admit, I was a little bit sad when he was not one of the seven. I thought he was like a dead shoe in. Uh, and like, obviously, they're like the other characters here are important and like i'm glad that they are all in this but i'm glad that nico even through tragedy i guess uh is gonna get a little bit more spotlight because he's kind of just been either a plot device or a damsel in distress uh these last few books i will say he does get a lot in the next book 
Um, and a lot in Blood of Olympus. Both of those are okay. very Nico heavy, so a little calmier. <laughs> there, there we go. And like I said, I just Nico's character. I agree, he would have been a really good pick for the seven. He would have been kind of the anti Annabeth, and the fact that Annabeth is so like she is a leader, but she's just like unbiased and no matter like in no regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but Nico's the exact opposite. He he would have like fit into that role in a different place, whereas he has been integrated to both camps mm-hmm. about the same, really, which is not a lot. Yeah. Um, and he's completely unbiased. He doesn't care which side of the aisle somebody's on. He's just going to try to do it himself. Yeah. Um, oh, that is also, Annabeth's parallel. Nico and Annabeth are the parallel there. There we go. Big brain. Any. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah nico is i just love nico and i might like i said i we get a lot more nico in the next book i'm excited um i'm just surprised he was able to find a hot topic down in in uh, tartarus <laughs> sacrificed happy meals <laughs> <laughs> okay so we can go ahead and do mvp lvp um do you do you want to start? You want me to start? Yeah, um, LVP here. I LVP is hard for this one, if I'm being honest, because uh, my normal metric of who does the who does the least doesn't really apply. Because it feels like unless I'm doing a very very minor character, everyone has a fair bit in here. I'm gonna say uh, my uh, my LVP is Bacchus. Uh, I almost certainly am saying that wrong, but um, he is, uh, he just, his entire thing, like, they try to talk to him, and he goes, meh, okay, uh, I'll, I'll do my best, I'll tell you the bare minimum information that I am required to, um, and then steps up uh, later, and is like, okay, thank you for the entire sailboat filled with uh, Diet Coke, uh, I appreciate that, anyway, I'm going to make you fight these giants until they are nearly dead so I can come in and just flick them in the forehead and kill them entirely. Like, it is, like, it even even Bacchus was a dead, like, uh, Bacchus, unlike Dionysus, or the release, I think so, was a demigod at some point. Dionysus uh, was too. He was too? Okay, cool. Um, He was a demigod at some point. You would think there'd be at least a little understanding there. And it doesn't seem to be like, like Mr. D's is like, he secretly cares for the kids. Like that's kind of his thing. He secretly cares, but doesn't want to let, uh, let that on. Cause I don't know, toxic masculinity maybe. Um, but he just, Bacchus is just like, no, I truly do not care. I kind of just want to drink diet Coke and that's it. Yeah, he, I agree. That's a good LVP. Um, I've got two that I'm bouncing between. Um, one, is, of course, is Octavian. He really mm-hmm. just makes things a lot worse than necessary. Rewind the episode a couple minutes and get to the crap talk of Octavian. Mm-hmm. I think that justifies why he is an LVP. But I, I'll take a little bit of one. Yeah, no, actually, yeah, no. Octavian's going to be my LVP. I was, I was braining the idea of maybe Percy because he's like the only one that really doesn't do a whole lot in this one. yeah. For once, Percy is useless in this book. Not useless. <laughs> we do learn that he's now 
afraid of drowning. Yeah. Which is like, okay, Percy, uh, let's dial it back here. What? <laughs> um, but no, I'll, I'll solidify Octavian and then give Percy the like participation ribbon. Like, oh. That, that's fair. That's Percy, fair. Of course, he does more in the next, but yeah. Um, MVPs. Uh, MVP for me, <sighs> I mean, I don't, okay. I don't want to say Annabeth. I was going to say Annabeth. Here's my issue. One, you might have Annabeth. Two, mm-hmm. she almost started an entire war. So <laughs> I feel like I don't really want to give it to a war criminal. Rewind to uh, the beginning of the episode and find mm-hmm. <laughs> where we assign blame to Annabeth. I am going to give this one to Leo. Uh, not only does he create the ship that gets them there, uh, and also starts the war. So I guess I'm still giving it to a war criminal, but uh, still, uh, man, man's hilarious in this one. Like he's hitting it with every joke. Um, I I have written down on here. Please mention that the ship is controlled by Wiimotes. Uh, and I just want to make sure that that is known to everybody out here if we haven't said that. This man, to go faster, shakes his Wiimotes like this and the fire goes like, ooh, like it's very, it's hilarious to me. Uh, and it, like, I think it fits his character very well. And I also really love that he finds like the notebook of Archimedes um and i was like oh my gosh and like he's like completely freaking out about this and we see that he is more than just like oh i just build things like he is actually like he has like these great passions that he's sort of geeking out over and it, i think it does a lot to strengthen his character um i will also say real quick and i was spent a, a decent amount of time on him at this point um but i was almost con- i was convinced that it was going to be like oh he found these great things uh and i was going to use the fortune cookie and because of that the great loss he's going to have is that he's no longer going to be able to have those scrolls and they're going to have to be lost in time forever because they get destroyed or something like that. Uh, which I was like, okay, that's fine, but it's kind of sad that they're just going to be here taunted and then never come back. Nope, he gets them. He just loses two lives instead. And I was like, okay. I thought that was a nice bait and switch. And this kind of goes, what you were saying about Leo goes into my, like, he's smarter than Annabeth. <laughs> <laughs> like, I... Annabeth is, of course, a better strategist, but Leo is, like, genuinely smarter. He's very smart, yes. Yeah, like, boy was doing, like, like higher-level, like, electrical engineering at the age of, like, 10. But <laughs> big brain Leo. Uh, actually, mine is going to be Frank. Uh, okay. And not just because I like a good excuse to talk about Frank, but because it is his frustration. First off, I, I feel for him so much. He's just so frustrated and so upset because he just feels like he doesn't fit in. And Leo is just teasing him because it's just Leo's vibe. But like Frank takes it to heart and it just like eats at him. And it's him going to Annabeth and being like, please teach me how these Chinese finger traps work. So I don't get mocked again. That literally leads to Annabeth being able to finish her quest. Mm-hmm. That that's fair. So, uh, small token to the one thing Frank Zing does really in this entire book. <laughs> he turns um, into a koi. Hey, he does turn into a and a dolphin. He does and a dolphin. That is a great play. performance on his part. I I love Frank, and like I said, I think his his humility and and the like ability to just ask for help directly help like, indirectly helps 
one of the other seven finish their portion mm-hmm. of the quest. So the Frank. <laughs> I believe that's it. Uh, yes, there's one thing. I have something else that I wanted to bring up on my notes. Um, the I think his name was uh, uh, like Echelus, the like the bull with the cornucopia horns. Yeah. Um, he's in it. That is all I wanted to say. <laughs> I wanted to make, I wanted to air that right now. Uh, he was literally like, oh, why didn't the girl come with me? I would have treated her better than Hercules, the the guy that is known for doing constant, constant quests of admiration and grandeur. Like, bud, yeah, you got to tone it down. She doesn't want to be with you. Anyway, that's, I just <laughs> wanted to get that off my chest. It's been, this sticky note's been staring me in the face of say Hercules isn't says himself. no simps here. <laughs> no st- <laughs> Anyhow. Well, <laughs> with that, uh... <laughs> um, next week we will be reading House of Hades, and of course, if you're listening to us uh, on U92, uh, you can always hop over to Spotify and, or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts and listen to us. If you're listening to one of those, um, you can always listen to us at 11 a.m. on Fridays on our home station of U92, The Moose. Um, you can always go to unitytothemoose.com to stream whatever is playing there. And if it's Friday at 11 o'clock, it'll be us. Um, so <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening, and we will catch you next week. See ya.